Hello and welcome to Complete Caribbean, a Travel Pulse podcast all about the world's favorite warm weather destination, the Caribbean. I'm writer, editor, and Caribbean travel expert, Jet Set Sarah. And I'm Brian Major, managing editor here at Travel Pulse. We're happy to have you join us today as we discuss the ins and the outs of Caribbean travel and we share the latest info and intelligence on this wonderfully diverse region. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Complete Caribbean podcast. It is Tuesday, October 12th. We have a jam-packed show for you today, so we're going to get started. Actually, we'll be talking to the CEO of the Aruba Tourism Authority. Can't wait for my colleague Brian to catch up with her. But first, let's get to the news. This just in. Well, once again, we're going to start off the show with some talk about COVID protocols. And in this week's COVID protocol news, I wanted to tell you that the twin island nation of St. Kitts and Nevis has reduced the required quarantine period for visitors. As of October 7th, the vacation in place stipulation for fully vaccinated visitors arriving by air has been reduced from four days to 24 hours. So now when you arrive, you're released directly to your approved hotel. And there during the first 24 hours, you'll be given a PCR test. FYI, that PCR test costs $150 and that is a cost to you. Provided these test results are negative, you'll then be free to roam the islands. But note that St. Kitts and Nevis is one of the Caribbean destinations that is only accepting vaccinating visitors. The approved hotels are on St. Kitts, the Park Hyatt, Marriott Beach Club and Royal St. Kitts Hotel. And on Nevis, there's the Four Seasons, the Paradise Beach, Golden Rock, or Montpellier Plantation and Beach. So if you want to ride the sugar cane on St. Kitts, for example, or soak in the healing waters of the spa stream at Bath on Nevis, you better get your jab. Love Nevis, love Nevis. And there were also, uh, folks, uh, developments, uh, positive developments on the cruise front over the past week. First, Royal Caribbean announced it will resume calls in Jamaica beginning in November of this year. For Royal Caribbean, this follows an absence from Jamaica of more than a year and a half. Last week, Edmund Bartlett, Jamaica's Minister of Tourism, also said Carnival Cruise Lines and its various brands will make 110 visits to Jamaica between October of 2021 and April of next year. The Carnival itinerary Itineraries will bring more than 200,000 travelers to Jamaica by the middle of next year, and the Royal Caribbean calls at the cruise port in Falmouth will bring tens of thousands more passengers to the country, Bartlett said. Now, Jamaica is slowly building up its tourism business, slowly rebuilding its tourism business post-outbreak. The country's land-based visitor arrivals have achieved steady growth towards pre-COVID-19 levels since June 2020, said Bartlett, and in August hosted its one millionth post-reopening visitor. Now, while Jamaica's arrivals are rebounding, there's a way to go before the country once again reaches the record of 4.23 million travelers it hosted in 2019. In fact, Bartlett said, visitors ar- visitor arrivals are projected to reach 3.7 million visitors by 2023. That's two years from now. He did say that the 2024 forecast calls for Jamaica to surpass 2019 arrivals with an estimated 4.2 million visitors. But, you know, that obviously depends on a lot going well in the meantime. Uh, Overall, Jamaica resumed its cruise calls in September of this year. And let's go over the rules again of what you need to know to cruise in Jamaica. 
Travelers over age 12 must be fully vaccinated and provide proof of a negative test from a COVID-19 test taken within 72 hours of sailing. For unvaccinated passengers, including children, a PCR test is required. All passengers are also screened and required to undergo an antigen test upon embarkation. I think it's really good that we have all these layers of protection because as we've seen, you know, the virus can slip through, but I think it shows, I think it shows that Jamaica and the cruise industry is clearly concerned for people's health, their passengers' health, health, and of course their profits. But at least I think this thing about being vaccinated is a good thing. Yes. Particularly at sea. Absolutely. I think it is a, a good thing. The cruise lines and I, I Carnival and Royal Caribbean have worked with each of the Caribbean destinations that, each rely on the other so heavily and uh this is all appropriate and um there will be as we saw as sarah mentioned there will be uh, occurrences but uh, they have to be managed uh in the right way so i think yeah. uh, there is a framework to have uh, safe cruising in the caribbean <laughs> well so we talked about the sea let's talk a bit about the air now because i have news about caribbean air service you remember a few episodes ago we talked about new caribbean flights specifically American Airlines' new direct flights from Miami into Anguilla and Dominica, both of which start in December. But now we have even more news to tell you. Tradewind Aviation has just announced their winter schedule from San Juan into Anguilla. The hour-long flights will run three days a week through April 2022, and they start at about $195 each way. Meanwhile, Air Canada announced the resumption of service from Toronto into Antigua's BC Bird International Airport beginning October 3rd. Martinique is also welcoming the resumption of American Airlines flights nonstop from Miami, which begin on November 6th. Initially, those flights are going to be once a week on Saturdays into Amy Césaire International Airport, but they will increase to three times a week from Christmas through March. So as we near the start of the high season in December, it's really good to see that it'll be even more convenient to follow the sun all the way to the Caribbean. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, those trade wind flights, I think, are really important. Um, uh, it, it means they're going to fly into San Juan, which means that people across the United States have access to those flights because San Juan receives flights from just about mm-hmm. every major gateway in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So um, more access, more availability. Um, and speaking of which, there's more cruise news. The Virgin Islands Port Authority is partnering with Royal Caribbean to develop infrastructure and attractions at port facilities on St. Thomas and St. Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands. The pact is part of a 10-year extension of an existing peer use agreement. And this pact, you know, I don't go into cruise business much, but this pact gives us an idea of how some of these cruise port arrangements are structured. Royal Caribbean is providing the Virgin Islands with a guaranteed minimum passenger level and revenues in exchange for preferential berthing and increased opportunities to visit St. Thomas and St. Croix. The cruise line has also, quote, expressed interest in financing enhancement to St. Croix's Crown Bay facility and making landside improvements in the surrounding district and St. Croix. I use quotation marks or virtual quotation marks because um, that does not mean there is an agreement in place, but I don't think there's any reason Royal Caribbean would not uh, follow through on this. But I, I think because there is not an agreement in place yet, they're, they're, um, they're being careful in, in what they say. Um, but uh, these we've seen these uh, kind of developments in other ports around the Caribbean, and I don't see any reason why that wouldn't happen here. 
Under the agreement, the Virgin Islands will partner with Royal Caribbean to expand the Crown Bay facility in St. Croix to to accommodate the cruise line's icon and quantum class ships and develop a third cruise berth. That means the largest Royal Caribbean ships are not going to be coming to St. Croix as well as St. Thomas when uh, when this is done. And uh, the enhancement plans also call for the parties to revitalize the district to appeal to residents and cruise visitors. Royal Caribbean has committed to partner with VIPA, Virgin Islands Port Authority, and the government to develop and enhance the overall visitor experience on St. Croix. Um, yeah, so we have uh, more development and more plans for uh, cruise development in the Caribbean. Yeah, and you know what? I think that, you know, if you're not in the travel industry, I don't think the average cruise passenger realizes that in the Caribbean anyway, those ports facilities are financed by the cruise companies. You know, there is a there is a relationship, obviously, a very close economic relationship between the destinations and the lines. It's in both their interests to have great cruise port facilities. You know, everybody wants the big ships to come to their destination, but the big ships need, you know, a berth and they need a facility. And so they do work hand in hand. And I'm just not sure I know that you know that, but I'm not sure if a lot of our listeners know that. So listeners, now you know. <laughs> I think you raise an excellent point, sir. I don't, I don't think many of our listeners know, but as you mentioned, the cruise lines finance that, and it's in the mutual benefit of all um, when it yes. works right. Yeah, when it works right. Absolutely. Well, we're going to move on to Island Intel now. I'm very excited about this interview, which I haven't yet heard because I was off in Bermuda, which we'll talk about later. On assignment. But my, but my, my colleague, Brian, um, had a great interview with the CEO of the Aruba Tourism Authority, which we're going to go play for you now. So take it away, Brian. Today, we have a very a special guest and a special treat. Ronella Jin. As Joe Crows is the CEO of the Aruba Tourism Authority. She's been in that position actually for quite a while. She is an experienced and uh, respected, globally respected um, uh, tourism uh, leader. And uh, she is here to discuss today with us some of uh, the aspects of travel to this wonderful destination of Aruba. Um, so thanks for being with us, Renella. Of course, uh, you're welcome. And uh, thank you for the, the nice introduction, Brian. <laughs> it's totally, totally uh, uh, great to have you here. So it's totally, you're totally welcome. And, My pleasure, uh, Rodella. You know, I, I, I think Aruba is great. I've been there several times, and um, it is a, it's such a wonderful destination. So, and I know many of our listeners may have been there because it is popular with Americans. So, if you're traveling to Aruba right now, uh, what are the current entry requirements? We reopened our borders uh, last year for the U.S. market in uh, July, and um, we've made sure that uh, the protocols that we put in place allowing people to visit Aruba are as easy as possible. So what you have to do when traveling to Aruba right now is that you have to complete your immigration process online. Um, This will take about no more than 10 minutes for sure. Um, And then consequently, also through this platform, you'll have to... um, upload your uh, negative PCR test results up to or between 72 hours up to four hours prior to your trip. And lastly, also, we have uh, an insurance, uh, a traveler's insurance that is mandatory for your travel to Aruba. 
just in case something happens, everything is covered. And um, we believe that that adds to the provision of peace of mind and the feeling, the sense of safety, basically, for our travelers. And we've seen that in the in the results, basically. That is great. And is there a separate cost, by the way, for the travel insurance? That's $35 indeed. And uh, kids are, are free. Well, I think that's a great value. And um, travel insurance is critical in our estimation uh, to obtain right now when you're traveling anywhere and specifically in the Caribbean. Um, so when we come to Aruba, uh, uh, Renella, what is the state of COVID infection there? And uh, how do you characterize the, the current situation, the cases and, and what's being done? Yeah, so we've also, uh, well, uh, the cases have come down. Uh, we've seen uh, some uptick um, related to the Delta variant. But in any case, we are now at um, approximately 160 active cases as we speak, so as per today, with a positivity rate at a sliding average of 9% uh, for the last week. And um, I believe also that it's important to add that we focused uh, a lot on um, getting the population vaccinated. So uh, for the part of the population that is eligible uh, for vaccination, we are at a 75% um, vaccination rate at this moment. We kicked off the vaccination process in Aruba in February of this year. That is an admirable level. Um, we've seen some Caribbean destinations close to that level, which is also good, and then some that are that are quite below that level. So um, indeed, is, we've uh, seen yes, we've seen the same thing. So um, it, it is yeah, quite an accomplishment. We're we're very happy to see that uh, the population did respond um, accordingly. That is always good to hear. And when we talk about the local population, uh, Renella are the cases that do exist sounds like a relatively low caseload but every destination is dealing with some uh, COVID infection so um when we talk about it in aruba is it more community-based is it in tourist areas how do you characterize that situation um in our case it is um the the protocols that we have in place in terms of entry requirements and um combined with uh, um, health and safety protocols for businesses providing services to, uh, to visitors are quite, um, have been quite effective. Um, so also uh, uh, that is evident in, uh, in the, in, based on the fact that uh, the majority of the cases have been locally transmitted cases and have been contained amongst the local population basically. Actually, the positivity rate amongst uh, tourists is, is very, very low since we reopened our borders last year in July. That is, again, very good news. And, um, you know, particularly since there are things to do all around Aruba, having been there. I mean, it's, a, it's an island of, uh, of many different regions and zones. So um, that is good to know. You know, Ronella, this is this is really right. I think right up your alley because you do this. This is really your job. Um, but this this pandemic has challenged the government to have the twin goals of maintaining tourism activity while at the same time, of course, protecting the health of the and safety of all of your residents and then all of your visitors. So how have how has your authority managed that? And how do you think the government in general has managed that uh, challenge? 
it is indeed a, 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 a delicate balance. Um, however, we may we have made sure to uh, um, first of all remain agile, uh, allowing uh, the, the island, so the tourism authority, together with other authorities uh, on a governmental, but also on a private sector level, allowing us to uh, respond uh, quickly to developments as as these occur. And as you can imagine, from the U.S. market, but also from other markets. Um, however, it remains, um, no matter what the developments, the safety of our visitors is, is critical, as well as of our population. In that regard, we have introduced um, mid last year already our um, Health and Happiness Code program, which is uh, a string, stringent uh, cleaning and hygiene uh, certification program. So all businesses providing services to uh, um, our visitors have to uh, adhere to this set of protocols. So that is one of the critical measures we, we took. And again, it adds to the safe, the sense of safety that our visitors feel. As a matter of fact, um, our, we're very uh, satisfied with the rate of recovery, uh, of tourism recovery for Aruba. Last month, uh, so the month of September, we saw a 91% uh, recovery rate of those visiting from the U.S. versus September of 2019. So that that has been a a trend, a recovery trend we've seen for the U.S. market in the case of Aruba. That is a very high level, (laughs) exemplary uh, level of of visitation. And uh, it kind of confirms some of the reports that we're getting of of people coming back um, to the region very even during the summer season, and now we're heading into the winter, the real, um, what traditionally is the high season for the Caribbean. So the trends appear to be very positive. Um, and, Ronella, you told me about the uh, the vaccine, the high vaccination level among the population. Um, two things. Um, has there been an effort specifically to, in, to vaccinate tourism workers? And um, also, have you considered, as a government considered, a vaccine um, restriction, uh, vaccine, vaccinated visitors only. So Aruba uh, is one is either the first or the second most reliant nations uh, nation in the world as it pertains to relative contribution of tourism to Aruba's GDP. And I'm citing results from World Travel and Tourism Council and uh, their annual reports. So it is not a matter of uh, making a distinction of prioritizing those working in, in the hospitality sector. Everybody on the island is involved in tourism. Tourism is part of the culture. So the efforts to vaccinate the population have been across the board. And um, uh, considering what, what I just indicated, basically, and it's indicated, indeed, we're, we're very satisfied with the rate of vaccination we've seen so far. In terms of restrictions, um, I assume you are referring to whether we are, whether um, if you're vaccinated, if you're not vaccinated, you cannot uh, uh, visit establishment XYZ. There has been no um, national mandate so far. It is something that we leave up to the particular businesses to make a decision on. However, so far, considering the results, considering the the low positivity rate amongst visitors also, and the effectiveness of the policies in place, we have seen no reason to uh, basically move towards such a measure um, as in that being mandated on a national level. So uh, the island is open and all businesses are open for everybody 
And we just have to make sure that we, we follow the protocols and uh, that that um, enforcement is in place accordingly. Excellent answer. And, uh, and uh, in particular, pointing out that uh, everyone in Aruba is involved in, uh, in tourism. So uh, vaccinating the entire population is the priority and makes perfect sense. Um, you know, Ronella, you are a native of Aruba, right? So when we talk about all of the attractions, I mean, you have uh, coastal areas, you have uh, nightlife, you have shopping, you have an urban component to Aruba and Aranjastad, um, so many different things. Um, and then all of the water sports, certainly, and all of the active things. But what is your when you're there and you're not working, which is probably not often, what what do you do? What is your favorite thing to do in Aruba? What would you recommend that people definitely should do, have to do when they're in Aruba? So indeed, we have to make sure as everybody else, we're seeking that balance in life. So the work-life balance, yes, the pandemic has brought with it um, extra stressful moments. So I do like to take the time to go to visit the national park, for instance, Parque Nacional Aricoc. Uh, take a swim in our natural pool. Um, I live, um, I think, less than five minutes away from the beach also. Uh, uh, very nice beaches, so I do take the opportunity to uh, get a swim um, now and then as well, or take a swim now and then. And um, make, make, take advantage of our surroundings, of our flora and fauna in Aruba, and uh, which is certainly um, a key part of that balance that everybody is seeking. So uh, as soon as you are in Aruba, you will feel that nice breeze, the tranquility of the island, and get to get that, your senses basically reacting to that, just, just these simple things, aside from everything else that you mentioned that we have to offer. That uh, when, um, to our listeners, when, when Ronella mentions Arikok, it is, um, it is distinctive in the entire Caribbean as a, uh, as a region and as a national park. I've done a, a horseback uh, excursion, a sunrise horseback excursion there when I'm not a sunrise person, but, but it was a, a great thing to do. So um, there are so many wonderful things to enjoy. Um, and we could talk for hours, Ronella, but... Um, I think we've come to the end of our, our little segment here. So um, we've packed a lot of information, I think, on travel to Aruba uh, into this segment. So, uh, of course, if there's anything else, um, uh, where should they, where should our um, advisors, travel advisors, where should they look? Uh, Ronella, what is the uh, website address that you recommend? www.aruba.com. That's uh, where you will find all of the information. So it can be, uh, it can be easier. It's very simple, aruba.com. That's perfect. Great. Well, thank you so much for being with us, Vanilla, and uh, for giving us this, uh, these few moments. It's great to, uh, to speak with you, as always. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity, and uh, stay safe. Well, thanks for that uh, interview with uh, Ronella. We do have a correction on the price of the Aruba Visitors Insurance. Uh, it has recently been reduced uh, from $35 to $15 for all visitors for Aruba. That is the Aruba Visitors Insurance, now $15 for all visitors to Aruba. Well, that was a very illuminating interview. I'm sorry I missed it, Brian, but it does make me definitely want to get I back to Aruba. 
<laughs> Thank you. It makes me want to get back to Aruba, which is I've discussed before. You know, I haven't been to that many times, but I went a few months ago and really connected this time with the island. So given um, the tourism CEO's responses, I think I kind of want to go back. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but anyway, we're going to move swiftly on to the final section of our program of our podcast, Island Inbox, in which we talk about stuff that's just, you know, come over the transom and into our lives that we want to share with you. So, Brian, why don't you start first? Well, I want to start with the Bahamas. And I just want to mention that we did talk about this, Sarah. And I, I mentioned that you were on assignment in Aruba and, and Ronella Jin as Joe Crows was very uh, happy to host you uh, there. And uh, great. just like you, I want to get back there. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot that I still have not done there. Um, but I want to talk right now about the Bahamas. And uh, my Island Inbox items really focus on leadership changes uh, that are happening in the, the Caribbean. And uh, in the Bahamas, there is a new tourism minister. His name is Chester Cooper, and he was appointed on September 17th. And he faces the uh, difficult task of rebuilding the Bahamas tourism reliant economy in the aftermath of the outbreak. Um, Chester Cooper is a Bahamian businessman and he is a parliament member. He replaces Dionosio, another name that I <laughs> often mispronounced, so I apologize to Mr. Diagular. Dionosio Diagular, who served as tourism minister. Um, beginning in 2017 through this year, uh, under the administration of the former Prime Minister, Hubert Minnis. Now, Joy Jibberlou, who is Director General of the Bahamas Ministry of Tourism, said in a statement that Cooper's energy and sharp business acumen are exactly what is needed as our ministry continues, continues the thrust toward tourism recovery amid an ongoing pandemic. Jimberlou also said Cooper acknowledges the core business in the Bahamas is driven by the international community and understanding the international context of business is absolutely critical to the sustainable expansion of the Bahamas tourism, aviation and investment sectors. The Bahamas achieved record visitor arrivals under Aguilar in 2019 with 1.8 million land-based guests and 5.4 2 million cruise ship travelers, the most cruise arrivals among destinations tracked by the Caribbean Tourism Organization. In a word, the Bahamas is a tourism-reliant destination and economy. Um, that before the year was over, before he had left office, yet Diagular said he was targeting 1 million air arrivals for 2021. And uh, Mr. Uh, Cooper will have uh, a lot to work on. Uh, the Bahamas is uh, uh, close proximity to the United States. It is a destination that is popular, but like all of the Caribbean destinations, it faces some challenges in rebuilding its tourism business. And uh, there will be uh, hurdles ahead. Meanwhile, Tourism Trinidad Limited named Curtis Rudd the agency's CEO effective September 20th. Mr. Rudd will lead TTL's efforts to re-energize Trinidad's tourism economy through this most difficult period in history, unite the sector, and define a clear path for the safe restart of international travel, said TTL officials in a statement. Mr. Rudd is a, is a Trinidad and Tobago native, and a businessman with more than 25 years of senior management experience, having previously held managerial positions with consumer corporations in Trinidad and Tobago 
and across the Caribbean. We are at a critical moment in the development of Trinidad's tourism industry, said Rudd in the statement, and we need the strategic collaboration of the private and public sector to take advantage of the market opportunities ahead and move out of this pandemic. Dr. Keith Rowley is Trinidad and Tobago's prime minister, and he says the government is planning to implement an app-based digital system enabling travelers to apply for and book travel to the country. Trinidad and, Tobago, Trinidad and Tobago reopened its borders on July 17th. Under the country's entry protocols, international travelers, travelers must be fully vaccinated to enter. And tourism has taken on a new significance in Trinidad. Traditionally, there has been a reliable diaspora market tied to events, including carnival. But for a variety of reasons, including COVID, the country's leaders have had to establish a more diverse travel base. And this is the beginning of that. You know, I got to say, it's this is a challenging time. I'm sure being a tourism minister is a challenge. It is challenging at all times. But to assume this role during a pandemic, I can only imagine how challenging that is to balance, you know, getting tourism back on its feet and people back out to work. But also, as we've discussed many times before, preserving public health. So these are these gentlemen, Curtis Rod and Chester Cooper, you you have our we're standing behind you and we wish you the best of luck and we hope to see you in your destinations very very soon so now i want to talk a bit about my trips you know i've been in and out and my last trip actually was to bermuda and i wanted to tell you a little bit about it i really wanted to share because i'm very excited about the destination so just a piece of background my my first and only trip before this to bermuda was Mm, about 10 years ago, so a long time ago. And of course, just so everybody is clear, yes, we know that the Bermuda is not actually in the Caribbean. It's actually floating around in the middle of the Atlantic all by itself, just off North Carolina. But, you know, we, we, we claim it as part of the Caribbean. We have Absolutely. lots of Caribbean people living in, the, uh, in Bermuda, and we claim it as our own. So that's why I'm going to... culture and traditions, I've heard. Yes, yes, very similar. So um, when I went, I stayed at the Rosewood Bermuda, which was the former Tucker's Point Resort, um, and then in St. George's, which is the was the former capital of um, Bermuda and is a U- UNESCO World Heritage Site, I stayed at the St. Regis Bermuda, and that's new. That just opened in May. I have to say for anyone who's wondering, I loved both resorts. This was my second time at the Rosewood. I stayed there when it was a Tucker 10 years ago. And this was my first time at the St. Regis, and I would definitely recommend both of them. The, su- the service Superb, superb, superb. But that wasn't really the, I mean, the, of course, the hotels were great, but that wasn't really the highlight of the trip. Um, the highlight were two things for me. One is that this chance, I, this time I had the chance to see and experience new parts of the island. For example, I toured Crystal Caves, which are the six million year old caverns that are about 130 feet underground. And they're truly stunning. Great photographs. Check my Insta feed for mine. Um, I had my first. But so the Bermudians, they have they they have some great things on their menus. And one of them is is a traditional Bermuda fish sandwich, which is sounds simple and is simple but so good and basically it's lightly battered fried local fish fillets and they put a layer of tartar sauce and maybe hot sauce if you want on top of them but the clincher is that the pieces the fried fillets are then nestled between two thick cut pieces of homemade raisin bread raisin bread and i have to tell you that combination of the sweet from the raisin bread and the savory. Amazing. Got to try it. I even had a chance to run with an Olympian. 
Yeah, Brian, see, you know, listeners, if, if you could see Brian's face, yeah, it's really good. And then, um, and then I also had a chance to run with an Olympian. There is a U.S. Olympian. Her name is Hazel Clark. She ran the 800 meters for the United States in 2000, 2004, and 2008 at the Olympics. And she ran with me. We ran 5K together along the island's um, railway trail. It was fantastic. It was really good. I got to get an inside scoop on what it's like to be an Olympic athlete, which isn't all, you know, glory. It was fantastic. But anyway, I just want to encourage you to go because I hope you have the same experience with me that I had this time, which was that I met incredible people. And I always say that it's the people who make the place. People like Doreen Williams-James. She is a funeral director. The island's one of only two funeral directors. She has a side hustle taking visitors on foraging tours throughout the island, showing them how to eat the island's herbs and plants and what they're used for. I met Lisa Quinn. She's an artist who has the most amazing, colorful watercolors. She served me lunch at her studio and with some sort of paintings and sarongs and handbags on the side. And then I met in St. George's, I met a woman called Kristen White. She owns a bookstore called Long Story Short. And apart from being the store owner, she also gives tours of the 400-year-old town. I told you it was Bermuda's first capital. And the great thing about these tours is, that centers the contribution of the enslaved Africans who came to that country in six in the 1600s. You know, so often when we go to the Caribbean, we take these tours and they really center the colonizers and they center the people not who actually built the thing, but who who worked in the thing in the fort. You know, so this was really refreshing to see how Black people have contributed to Bermuda's history from the very beginning. I left there feeling really sorry that it had taken me a 10 years, a whole decade to get back there, but really happy um, that I could always have the chance to go back. So I just think if you're not thinking about Bermuda um, and it is getting a bit chilly there, it's what they call their spa and golf season it can get down into the fifties between now and say February. But honestly, anytime you can get to Bermuda, highly recommend it. Highly recommend it. Well, you sold a side of Bermuda that is not that is unjustly uh, under under recognized, and uh, you know, for a Bermuda veteran like myself who've been there so many times, there is just so much more to explore, and that aspect of yeah. Bermuda uh, needs to be focused on just as much as others. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and across the Caribbean. So on that note, we're going to wrap it up for episode 13. We thank you so much for listening as always. We know there are other podcasts you can listen to, and we happy, we're so happy that you chose to listen to ours. Uh, please like us, subscribe us, tell your friends about us. <laughs> subscribe us? I'm not sure. Am I a writer? <laughs> subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about us, and like us as much as you can. And we'll see you next week for episode 14. 